0: Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone. It is a project of EEI, Edison Electric Institute, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Viator, Executive Director of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today, I am joined by the Vice President of Governmental Affairs at Alabama Power, Houston Smith. And we're going to have a little conversation, I think an opportunity and something that's become critically important in the time of COVID, and that is broadband access and broadband service. So to kick us off, I'm going to invite Houston into the conversation and ask him a question here. So Houston, can you tell me a little bit about what middle mile broadband is? Broadband is really broken down into three different types of different networks. One is a long haul network. One is middle mile, which you mentioned, and then the third is last mile. And we like to think about those a lot like the nation's transportation system, so roads and highways. And your long haul is kind of like your interstate backbone. Your last mile would be the driveway. And then the middle mile is what connects state and county roads. And so middle mile the best way to think about it is it's that road that connects your driveway to the major interstates. And it's critical to getting broadband into rural communities. Well, Houston, you know, a lot of the questions about broadband are technical and, and operational. And I don't understand technical or operational things, so I want to ask you about that. I'll instead ask you about your area of expertise, which is policy. So curious to just, I guess, understand a little bit better. What sort of policy changes were required in Alabama for you guys to be able to participate in building out this middle mile broadband network? It's hard to talk about anything in the era of COVID without focusing on that and what it has revealed about our schools and our communities, particularly in Alabama and some of our rural schools and poor communities. But even before that, a couple of years ago, our state recognized that we were woefully inadequate in broadband deployment across the state. And so a lot of our elected officials in the legislature, the governor's office, and some of her departments Governor K. department departments got really focused on broadband. And the first thing that happened in our state was the passage of a grant program. And that grant program did not apply to electric utilities and we didn't play a role in getting involved with that legislation. But over a year of the passage of that grant program became obvious that the money just wasn't getting used. And we weren't deploying broadband quickly enough. And so Our legislators were looking for a solution, and in particular, the Senate President Pro Tem Del Marsh were trying to figure out who could help solve the problems the state was facing around broadband. And we believe that our company does everything it can to help the state grow. And we knew that we had a role to play in broadband. And you know that that's because for the safety, um, resiliency, and reliability of the grid, our company's been laying fiber down our lines for nearly 30 years. I mean, long before technology caught up to make it the valuable asset that it is today. And so knowing that we did that, we listened to business units and worked with them to try and find out what were some of the hurdles for us to participate to help the state extend broadband from those long haul interstate highways to driveways. So what role could we play? And one of the things we saw that was a problem was the difference in land rights between the way electric utilities are treated, whether that be regulated, vertically integrated utilities like us or the co-ops and the way that the traditional broadband providers were treated. And so, you know, we worked with a number of different electric utilities across the state on what we call the Broadband Using Electric Easements Accessibility Act. And what that long title did was really clarified the rights of electric utilities to use their easements. And it was focused on the deployment of middle mile infrastructure so that we could help solve some of the state's problems with the deployment of rural broadband. I wouldn't say it was a easy process, but it was good to have a lot of allies to help us work it through the system. Well, can you explain to me a little bit why is this necessary? Why did they need the electric companies or co-ops or whatever, the electric providers to invest in middle mile broadband? Why weren't the telecom companies just doing this in the first place? So I'll tell you the same thing that we argued in our efforts in the state legislature, which is for us, what we care most about is that communities have broadband and we don't need to be the ones who make it happen whether it be us or the rural co-ops, but we want communities to have it. And if the traditional providers aren't willing to go into rural communities, then we want to find a way to make it easier for us to either partner with them and help them get into rural communities or to make it easier for co-ops to serve their rural customers. So one of the problems that we know happens with a traditional and incumbent broadband provider is their business model works best in a Dense community, a city, a downtown urban area it doesn't work as well in the rural areas. And we all know that electric utilities have, I mean, at least since, you know, 1936 with the passage of the Rural Electrification Act had to serve all customers. It's a great privilege, but it's also a responsibility. But by doing that, they're forced to string lines all throughout communities, regardless of how dense the population is. And so it gave us and it gave the co-ops a unique opportunity to help solve problems for the state. And that's where legislation played a major role because in other states, Brad, there were legal uncertainties that had slowed down the process and really hurt the efforts to expand broadband to those who need it the most. I mean, COVID, we've talked about this, you know, has revealed the critical nature of broadband, but it is such a, a part of all of our conversations. Today, we had the kickoff of Governor Kay Ivey's Innovation Commission, which Zeke Smith, head of V. EVP of External Affairs, Alabama Powers sits on this advisory council with people like Condoleezza Rice, had their very first meeting. And they said the first step that the state has to figure out is broadband. It's not even a question for the commission. The commission is looking at incentives and entrepreneurship. But that group recognized the importance of broadband in the first 10 minutes of our first conversation. Houston, the comment you made a moment ago about the sort of first priority for Alabama and that Innovation Commission is figuring out this broadband quagmire, I think is the reason that we're having this conversation, the reason there's so much excitement around the industry to try to replicate some of the successes you guys have had in Alabama. I think leaders are saying that in every state right now. And so that's part of the reason we want to dig in and just understand what the roadmap is to achieve success and to help build a national broadband network. So you guys now have the authority to go out and participate in broadband service? From a land rights perspective. From a land rights perspective. Got it. Okay. Right. So how will it work when this thing gets rolled out? Somebody else is going to be the retail provider or we're going to have Alabama Power Internet Service? How's all that going to work for these folks that live in these rural communities that are underserved now? That's right. So we are not going to have Alabama Power broadband service but what the legislation allows us to do is use our existing easements so we can lay fiber down our existing easements and then my traditional model would be partner with an incumbent cable provider who doesn't have to bear that upfront cost and can then partner with us and carry the distribution the last mile to the customer's house sounds pretty good are y'all doing it yet has it happened do you have contracts Uh, in place yeah we do. We have already worked with a couple of our communities on partnerships. And listen, it's not always getting the internet, right? It's a matter of service speeds. And some places may have, you know, and this is a technical question with respect to who is served or underserved, but some places may have some internet service, but it's not adequate speeds to upload or download like you would need. And listen, a year ago when we were talking about that, it was important, but today it's critical, right? No doubt about it. I mean, the conversations I've heard from policymakers, Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, the majority whip in the House, number three Democrat in the House, was talking about this. And he was saying that folks in his district, kids in his district are having to drive to the high school and sit in the parking lot to get internet service to be able to turn their assignments in. And that is also in some places, even an innovative solution. There are places in Alabama that didn't have that before, but now organizations have outfitted buses with internet capability that goes and sits in a parking lot, right? And broadband and true reliable internet access is so critical to innovation, generally innovation in rural communities. You know, we talked about during this, the time when we were working on the legislation, how we live in a time today where anyone, as we're learning through COVID, but this was a year ago, you know, you can do most jobs that are computer-based from anywhere, right? So you can work for a company and not have to go into the office so long as what? So long as you have reliable internet service. And now that's even more critical. Back in 1936, the electric companies figured out, or were forced to figure out how to electrify America, no matter where you are. So it's an area where your company and the industry writ large has some experience, and we know how to uh, build out infrastructure. So I think this connection makes a boatload of sense. Is the model that you guys have developed in Alabama, do you think it's something that's transferable? And if so, what needs to happen so that we can see this proliferate in other states? Well, absolutely. So without going into the details of where they were, we saw problems in other states that we used as examples that we we're trying to solve in Alabama, So problems through litigation that was costly that held up the expansion of broadband. This is really dealing with property rights, which is a state law issue in most cases. I know this is something that's happening across your western border in Mississippi. Do you think this is something that might expand elsewhere to states like Georgia, Tennessee, other places where you guys are engaged, where the company's engaged? Yeah, you know, they've seen the direction of their commission focused on broadband and certainly the role the co-ops play. And I know their regulatory and legal structure is slightly different in Mississippi, but I think the problem that we're talking about exists everywhere. I mean, the traditional incumbent provider needs density, right? And so they will serve your big cities no matter what state you're in. It just financially is a challenge for those providers to get into the rural areas. And what the electric utilities have is existing infrastructure in those areas and existing easements and land rights. You know, Brad, earlier you mentioned sort of the legal authority to participate in the broadband business. And while that matters to us and our business, it was a unique challenge for the rural co-ops. What was important to them about this legislation is that it did clarify questions of authority as it related to their ability to participate in this broadband space. And, you know, some of them are doing things slightly differently than we are. You know, they're serving customers, but it was important for them. And it has been handled differently in different states and caused problems for rural co-ops to get into this business in other states, where questions of authority existed. Hmm. It didn't give us anything unique. It just brought us up to par with what they're doing to allow us to participate and help them. And what we're seeing now, though, is through innovation and sort of the global innovation, devices are developing that really help us manage the grid so much more efficiently for customers. And when power goes out, we get it back on so much more quickly. Or when power goes out because of the fiber, you may have a tree fall on the line that pre-fiber would have taken out 300 customers. But now today it takes out 10. The efficiencies gained through the deployment of fiber and the devices. Now that that exists, didn't exist 40 years ago. It's like this concept we hear discussed when we're talking about smart cities or smart communities, right? This is just about some coordination between all these essential service providers, right? It's about coordination between the electric companies, cable provider, the telecom provider, right? And if you've got this network, you're making these investments in fiber and, and stuff that can be used for other purposes, you might as well. Well, let me say this to the point of partnerships. I mean, we have some existing partnerships, but what was interesting is we worked the legislation through some, of course... Just by nature, people don't want change. And so there were certain incumbent internet service providers that we had an initial disagreement around the policy. But what we also noticed was others came to us and said, We want to partner. If you're going to be Land Fiber that can help us get to houses, we want to be a partner in that. If you're providing advice to your peers in other states who want to do something similar, what recommendations would you have? What things would you tell your peers to? consider on the front end before they gear up for this legislative debate? Different legislatures are so unique that I wouldn't try to give advice to someone. I will tell you what worked for us was we had a legislature that really wanted to solve a problem. They saw very clearly that rural communities, some of our poor communities did not have the service that they needed. Some of those legislators lived in areas where they didn't have the right service. And so the narrative made sense. The fact that we could play a role, that there was no one else actually solving the problem all helped us. But we also went out and we built coalitions started during our dialogue was the alabama rural broadband coalition right and that was not just electric utilities but that was hospitals who care about that sort of thing that was our manufacturers who know that rural broadband is critical to their operations anybody who cares about economic development knows that you need rural broadband or the expansion of broadband in underserved areas so we found other entities that believed the expansion of broadband was critical, that we could convince that we could play a role in helping to expand broadband into underserved areas or into rural areas. And we worked together with a broad coalition. Tell me a little bit more about that coalition that you guys formed around broadband. What did it look like? Who were the other players or industries involved in it? Brad, part of it was the legislature and legislative leadership was so motivated by broadband that it was a real issue and a real discussion point during the entire legislative session. And so, there were a variety of different entities and industries that were really interested in the expansion of broadband. And so, as we were forming the Broadband Coalition, or taking a part in its formation, we identified a number of areas that also cared those areas included things like agriculture, which makes sense. I mean, our agriculture these days is so much more technologically advanced than it was just a decade ago. But then we had business groups, those interested in economic development, those interested in education, and then, of course, healthcare. And so bringing together leaders, associations, corporate leaders in all of those different areas and help build a strong coalition to support what we needed to do, what the legislature needed to do to expand opportunities for profit. We hope that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights about the intersection of energy policy and COVID-19. To learn more about the electric industry's response to COVID-19, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.